Welcome to Sports Medicine Weekly on 670 The Score, your on-air resource for fitness, nutrition, and injury prevention and treatments for today's weekend warrior and professional athletes with renowned specialist of elbows, knees, and shoulders, Dr. Brian Cole, along with other health and fitness leaders, and your host, Steve Cashel, right here on 670 The Score. And good morning, everyone. Welcome into a brand new Sunday edition of Sports Medicine Weekly. My name is Steve Cashel, joined by my usual co-host, Dr. Brian Cole. He is the head team physician for the Chicago Bulls, a team physician with the Chicago White Sox, sports medicine specialist and orthopedic surgeon from Midwest Orthopedic at Rush. Tenth season now of Sports Medicine Weekly, and please Feel free to join us on our website, sportsmedicineweekly.com. Reminder that podcast segments always available to hear on the Sports Medicine Weekly blog, Apple, Google, Spotify, Pandora, YouTube, and iHeartRadio. And Dr. Cole, how are you this morning? Steve, I'm doing great. It's great to be with you again. Good. We've got a great guest on the line that we're going to begin the show with and something dr cole i mentioned 10 years now that we've been doing this show i don't know if we've ever talked about um uh, equine sports medicine but we've got dr lisa fortier joining us a dynamic guest a professor of equine uh, veterinarian and surgery from cornell college of veterinary medicine and dr fortier thanks so much for joining us here on sports medicine weekly yeah thanks for having me steve and brian appreciate it. Tell us what you do, okay? This is a, this is a new subject uh, for us, and uh, we've never gotten into the, uh, the subject of equine uh, veterinary work, and uh, can you explain a little bit about uh, your position? Sure. I do uh, very similar work to what Dr. Cole does at Rush. Uh, so I'm the head of equine programs at Cornell. I oversee the D1 polo team, so you might consider your human participants the riders of the D1 athletes, but I consider the horses are the D1 athletes as well. We have a large teaching herd of horses for students to be able to learn how to handle horses, how to treat horses. Uh, I actively do equine surgery two days out of every week, both here in upstate and Ithaca, New York. We also have a satellite clinic right across the street from the Belmont Racetrack where we can see all the horses on Long Island, both sport horses, uh, so hunters and jumpers and dressage, which is like ballet to you. Uh, And then we see, of course, many, many track horses and horses that run in all sorts of disciplines, and even backyard fun horses. And the other component of my work that I've worked extensively with Dr. Cole and many others is in development of of ways that we can really prevent and treat tendinopathies as well as arthritis in many of our uh, sport horses as well as human athletes. Steve, there's a a huge number of parallels between what Dr. Fortier does and what we do in human medicine, and it's, it's been sort of the, one of the most interesting aspects of what we do in the area of research because there's at least a half a dozen things that I do in the office now that actually had their genesis in the equine or the horse world. We do, uh, Dr. Fortier spends a lot of her time doing research in, uh, in veterinary medicine and specifically large animals. And we, we use things every day now that we actually had to learn about in animal models and then translate them to human models. Um, but even more importantly, the kinds of injuries that uh, she sees in the in the in the horse world, the equine world, are very, actually very similar. We joke a lot, and I say this uh, that like the hard part I think of my job is actually dealing with 
patients on a day-to-day basis and trying to figure out what their concerns are and addressing their needs. And we have to talk to the patients. And I often say, well, how hard can your job be when you don't actually have to talk to your patients? But uh, Lisa, tell me what the real answer to that is. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the real answer to that is uh, it's more like pediatrics that, of course, the patient can't talk, so they can't tell us where they hurt. We just know that they're not quite right. So it can be diagnostics can be much more difficult. But and for sure, the horse doesn't talk in words, but they always come with a trainer and owner and, and a, oftentimes a referring veterinarian. So uh, they all speak very much on behalf of the patient that I see. So I was just, so, you know, we just had the Kentucky Derby. So tell, tell us a little bit about, you know, your role with these athletes and injury and so forth. And, you know, we have on the field and on the court management, how does it work there? And what are some of the things that you, you know, you don't have to speak specifically to any of the injuries that might or could have happened, but, you know, what about in your world that you deal with in the same way that's analogous to what we see in sort of human sports? Yeah, as a equine veterinarian, we really try to prevent many of these injuries, and that can be anywhere from the weanling when they're four to six months of age up until they're a yearling, and typically horses start training at around two years of age. Uh, so we can be monitoring their joints and tendons that whole time to be sure they aren't exhibiting any signs of overstress or too rapid growth that could lead to some uh, growth disparities in, in joints and ligaments as well. So that's on the preventative side. And then once they enter training, to really make sure that their uh, bones and ligaments and so far they're adapting to uh, the type of rigors that are, are placed on these animals. I'm, of course, an orthopedic person like you are, Brian, uh, so I don't deal in the upper respiratory region, but they have a lot of uh, upper respiratory uh, throat issues as well. Not not really colds or COVID, that sort of thing, but really uh, functional mechanics of the upper airway that uh, I don't really deal in. And then once they start racing, we can certainly see uh, tendinopathies if horses uh, race in super deep, no different than if you or I go r- running on the beach for too long, your Achilles would hurt. Horses can cer- certainly sustain that uh, in, in different track weather, so deep sand, muddy weather, all those things can change. We have lots of synthetic, synthetic tracks, uh, but as you know, in your human athletes as well, it's very similar that it really transfers the type of injuries that we might see from more bone to more soft tissue. So really trying to keep track of where the horse is not only performing, but where they're training and trying to keep them from that uh, more catastrophic or more career-ending sort of uh, sort of. Uh, injury. My direct role in the equine industry is as a representative of the American Association of Equine Practitioners. We always have a representative there to help be really a spokesperson if a horse does get injured so that we can very clearly relay to the public, you know, our concerns for the horse, how the horse will be treated, and what does the injury mean for the horse. So uh, that's on behalf of the American Association of Equine Practitioners. So when you see a veterinarian on television if there is an unfortunate situation where a horse gets hurt. Uh, I'm a spokesperson for that in that role as well. well. What's the most common injury that would happen, you know, at a, at a race like yesterday? What is, what do we most commonly see? Uh, well, there, there's two really. It's it, they're musculoskeletal for sure. Uh, we see very, very few cardiac incidents. They do happen, but but rarely. Horses can get heat stroke just like people, but that's not as common as uh, strained tendons or horses, especially this time of year, as you know, the derbies, because of COVID, really flipped it. So this should be in the first weekend in May. Uh, but towards the end of the race season, horses have seen a lot of miles, much like your NBA or Red Sox 
uh, players towards the end of the season, they get cumulative injuries or just get more and more tired. So the two most common things we would see are osteochondral chip fractures, so small chip fractures in the joint. And if we take those out, we really prevent all forms of osteoarthritis uh, from developing. And the second most common uh, would be a, a, a tendinopathy, what we call a bowed tendon, because when you look at a tendon and a horse in the side, it looks like a bow, like a bow and arrow. It has a a profile that extends towards the back of the horse. So those two are by far the most common. Again, visiting with Dr. Lisa Fortier, Professor of Equine Surgery at Cornell College of Veterinary Medicine. I'm Steve Cashel with Dr. Brian Cole. It is Sports Medicine Weekly. Uh, Dr. Fortier wanted to ask you, uh, talk about the diagnostics. Um, You know, with people, we're used to MRIs and CAT scans. Uh, What about for horses? Sure, that's a great question. Uh, We rely really heavily on ultrasound in the field, but once they get into a hospital situation, uh, most referral hospitals, uh, including Cornell, both hospitals of Cornell, the Belmont one on Long Island, as well as upstate, have MRI and CT. Uh, We have a standing CT unit at, at the one at Ruffian because many of these modalities require a horse to be put under anesthesia. And if they're injured, then we don't want them to have to wake up from anesthesia because that can be further traumatizing to whatever injury they had in the first place. So down at the Belmont uh, Clinic, I shouldn't call it the Belmont Clinic, the Ruffian, Cornell Ruffian Equine Specialist, we have a standing MRI unit, and a, and a that means the horse is standing, and a standing CT unit. The disadvantage, as you might imagine, is there's always some motion artifact, even if they're very heavily sedated compared to when they're anesthetized. So upstate here in Ithaca, we have a CT, very nice, a CT scanner and an MRI of very equivalent to what you would have if you were a human going to get an MRI. We do struggle to get really, really high up in the limb just because of the bulk of the animal to get them into the center of the unit uh, can be difficult and in some cases impossible. So to get the middle of a body of a horse, the body of the spine into any of these units won't happen. But for diagnostics, it's primarily ultrasound, radiographs or x-rays uh, CT, MRI, we need to find the location of the injury first. If you can't feel it, palpate it, if you can't see it, then we rely a lot on local analgesia, very similar to if a dentist numbs part of your face, we numb part of the horse's foot and see if the lameness goes away. Then we numb another part and see if the lameness goes away. So sometimes getting to the area of the diagnostic is the more difficult part than actually getting the imaging. And Dr. Cole, you mentioned that uh, you have done some uh, collaboration with Dr. Fortier. Um, how, what have you learned, Dr. Cole, uh, from the uh, equine community? Well, you know, I will tell you that it's, while I think the public may not know, you know, we do uh, use uh, animal models, uh, not infrequently, but as infrequently as necessary, I would say, uh, to sort of investigate some really challenging disease processes in humans. And um, one of the difficult aspects of using an animal model is it's hard to protect their sort of their weight-bearing status. Like when I, Steve, when I operate on you, for example, I put you, when I did your shoulder, I put you in a sling for four weeks and I can ask you to do things. And one of the challenges in, in animal research is that when we do various interventions to try to see if something will work or not work, that we can ultimately translate back to the human setting. 
um, we, we have a really difficult time protecting their weight-bearing status or, or their activity status because oftentimes it's intermediate or long-term follow-up. Like we may do some procedure to help uh, correct, say, an issue where there's arthritis or localized arthritis or loss of cartilage, and then we need a you know eight to twelve month follow up. But the first six eight weeks are particularly vulnerable, but we can't necessarily protect their weight bearing status. So it actually provides a pretty challenging model that I've come to learn that if you can make something work in a horse, uh, we can hopefully make it work in a human. And um, it's it's been a pretty amazing. Um, field to, to do research. It's a lot more interesting than, in my mind, than working in a test tube or uh, in some of the other studies we do because it's real surgery, real problems that not only provide a solution for a horse, uh, but could also provide a solution in the human world that we don't actually have you know, good ways to solve. So it's probably one of the most interesting aspects of what, what I do and the most and the, some of the best collaborations we've had have been you know, using these types of large animal models to say, hey, this is the problem. Let's see if we can figure it out. And if, as I say, because it's such a challenging model physically, if it works there, I think we stand a pretty good chance to maybe have it work in the human setting. Great, Stuttin. Final question for Dr. Lisa Fortier. Really appreciate you joining us. Uh, coronavirus, has COVID-19 um, been proven that, uh, you know, uh, for animal studies and uh, it hasn't affected uh, horses or your equine activity? That's a great question, and I'll just say thanks for having me. Uh, horses have their own version of coronavirus, uh, which comes and goes with, you know, our, our polo team visits other polo teams, and, you know, horses travel just like your athletic teams do. Uh, and we had a, a small, right when COVID-19 was hitting at the end of March, beginning of April, uh, we had a horse test positive for co- for coronavirus, but wow. it wasn't COVID-19, but people went crazy. We were like, calm down. It's not the same thing. This is just a horse version. Um, but what I will say, how it affected veterinary medicine, coronavirus, COVID-19, how it affected veterinary medicine in general is, as Dr. Cole knows, when, when we get a horse ready for surgery, it's not just here, take your orders and go walk over there. It takes many, many people to move a horse from place A to place B to get the x-rays, all the other imaging so when coronavirus hit and the school shut down, we lost most of our staff. And so we were really crippled to get things done. That was one component of it. When people got their stimulus checks and their unemployment checks, I think they all went out and bought dogs because our, and it's not just ours, it's across America, the uh, number of small animal, the, the business side of the small animal clinic is up over 50% in our hospital. So our anesthesia group and our imaging group are just bursting at the seams because everybody owns all these dogs and cats now. Uh, so we have, there's been no transmission from a horse getting the COVID-19 to giving it to people. We do think that dogs and cats are vectors, uh, meaning they don't get sick from it, but they can transmit it, but very, very, very rarely. And it's mostly probably coming from a home where the household people have coronavirus and are shedding it and probably don't know. And then we, as veterinarians or the veterinary staff, get it from the coat of the animal. So we have really strict COVID admission policies. When an animal comes, I go out, to the, I go out and get the horse with my own lead rope or, you know, if it were a dog, it would be a leash. And the owner never comes into the building and we clean off the animal as soon as it gets in there. Uh, so it's definitely affected it, but mostly because people have scooped up 
all the small animals and you can go to the shelters, they're empty, which is phenomenal. So I don't know what's going to happen when people have to go back, when we get to go back to work and they figure out these dogs are going to destroy their houses. <laughs> I can definitely wow. empathize. I can, Steve, I can definitely empathize. I have a Corona dog right now uh, that my two <laughs> boys went out and got, and I was in the operating room and my kids are sitting there on their, in the car and I'm, they FaceTime me and they are just laughing and I'm like, what is so funny? And then they turn the phone to the back seat where there's this border collie jumping out of his skin. It is a, a border collar puppy just jumping up and down doing like loops in the back seat. I'm like, you're kidding me. So I can, I can, I can testify to the fact that we are in the exact situation. I don't know what I'm going to do when everyone goes back to work. It is not going to be simple. <laughs> wow. Great stuff. Dr. Lisa Fortier, professor of equine surgery, veterinarian, Cornell College of Veterinary Medicine. Thanks so much for, for joining us uh, here on Sports Medicine Weekly. Yeah, thanks for having me. Okay, we're going to take a break right now on Sports Medicine Weekly. When we return, it's our Ask the Doctor segment. You're listening to Sports Medicine Weekly only on 670 The Score. Okay. <laughs> 